The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. So my intention for this evening is to continue a process that began, I think, the day I was born, and will continue for an infinite period of time. But for now, in the past 41 years, as a monk and a teacher, a process that intentionally is, again, about bringing clarity. When we take a look at current events in our world, there is probably nothing greater necessary than to bring clarity both to our lives and to our world. So this evening's teachings are central and core for Buddhists all throughout the world. But I believe that they also core for any sentient being, any human being, who finds himself or herself drawn to a deeper and more profound spiritual life. Gerhard Shadan said, and we use this as our context for this evening's uh, discussion, that what we are, are spiritual beings, having a human experience. And when we bring that together with what the Buddha taught 25, decade, uh, 25 centuries ago, when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering in his teachings does not necessarily mean grave physical pain, but rather the mental anguishing or dissatisfaction we experience when our tendency to cling or attach onto pleasure and comfort expectations and objects of our desire, and our false sense of self. So Chardin says to us that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And 25 centuries ago, the Buddha said, what seems to be quite unique to the human experience is suffering. However, he wanted us to understand that suffering pervades all sentient life, that it is not something that happens to us, but it is inherent in life. But for tonight, we need to, again, lay the context for our discussion. When we begin to talk about what is often identified as the three gems or jewels of Buddhism, or the three refuges, in an effort to fully understand the meaning of this Tathagata, the meaning of this teaching in Buddhism, we need to understand that it functions out of the context of the Buddhist teaching on suffering. The first noble truth says to us, life is suffering. The Buddha wanted us to understand that the living experience involves suffering, that it is suffering but not the suffering that we often think about, not just 
physical pain, which you don't need a guru or a Zen master to tell you is part of life. You just need to get older, as I'm experiencing it. And you get really clear that pain comes along with living your life, living in a human experience. But the suffering in particular that the Buddha was addressing and wanted to fully understand for himself, we need to remember that this teacher's life as a teacher began as a human being in search of the very same answers to the questions of life you and I have. In fact, his story, the story of a young, well-to-do, well-off prince who had everything and yet found himself again in the experience of suffering, that is, dissatisfied with his life. And in his own journey, somewhere at a young age, he encounters some realities of life which causes him to suffer. And his suffering becomes so profound that he sets out to find answers to that. He wanted to know, why do we suffer? He wanted to know what caused our suffering. Here he was, someone who had everything, who lived a life that only you and I can possibly dream of. And yet, he found himself dissatisfied with his life, discontented. So he sets out, like all of us did at one point, and do maybe on a regular basis, to inquire into what was that about for him. And so he sets out to understand suffering, and he says later on as a teacher, I want you to be clear. I teach one thing, the very thing that I was interested in from the very moment I left the palace in search of solutions, and that is suffering, its causes, the cessation from suffering that I discovered, and what that was. So all of the Buddhist teachings are designed to answer the question of the human experience of suffering. What is that? When we talk about the three refuges, as it is talked about in Buddhism, taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha, these fundamental core teachings rise out of the Four Noble Truths, rise out or surface from the Buddha's understanding of suffering and what he discovered in that moment of enlightenment, the realizations about suffering and the human experience. Suffering, or what he called dukkha, and one of the things, one of the problems about teaching the Buddha Dharma in the West is that we need to remember that the Buddha did not speak English. And in fact, there is no literal translation, English translation, of the term he used for, to describe the suffering he was teaching on. The term he used was dukkha. He said, life is dukkha. The closest that we can come to it is to explain that the suffering that he wanted to fully understand and realize whether or not there was cessation from that was, again, that mental anguish, that constant fear about the future, uh, regret about the past, and how all of that state of mind informs us in this present moment. There is a saying, biology dictates reality. 
conditioning, as the Buddha taught about it, dictates behavior. And so he wanted to understand what informs us in this moment, what generates, for example, those experiences of worryment, those experiences of discontent. When we take a look at our lives, for example, every one of us in this room, I will assume, can relate to this. We have plenty of food, we have water to drink, we have houses we live in, jobs we go to, money in our bank, maybe not as much as we would like it to be, and that desire or dissatisfaction is part of the problem, as we'll see. Uh, we, we live pretty convenient lives, and yet, if we are willing to be honest, we sit in this room, even now, or throughout the day, somewhere, discontentment rose up within us. And he wanted to understand thoroughly what that was about. When he taught about, talked about suffering, he talked about it as three particular compartmental issues. He said that suffering is, again, inherent in ordinary life. In other words, he said, get used to it, get over it, life will have disappointments. So he talked about the ordinary suffering. He said, it is to be expected that you will be disappointed, that your expectations will be unfulfilled, that someone will disappoint you, someone will fail you, that life will surprise you, and all of that will happen. And he called that ordinary suffering. And that, again, as I said a moment ago, the very fact that we have bodies, that we exist in flesh and bone and made up of skandhas, there will be pain involved also. So I can remember the first time I talked about the first noble truth, and I told the audience then, as I have since then, that I kind of think that when he, you know, uh, made his way up to that platform they built for him in Deer Park, and he spoke before thousands of pilgrims that had come to listen to the first teaching of this teacher that became well known, and he sits there in front of this audience that had been waiting in the sun and the heat for hours until he got there. And he opens his mouth and he says, life is suffering. Uh, to a crowd that knows suffering, or at least physical suffering, much more profoundly than maybe any one of us in this room. I kind of sense he said, life is suffering, get over it. And that's the first noble truth. He went on to say that our difficulty, or in other words, our suffering about suffering, doesn't, however, have to do with the causes or reasons we always blame or apply. In other words, the reason why we suffer has nothing to do with the story that normally runs in our heads about why I don't like my life, about why I don't like what he's saying about why I'm discontented with the world as it is. Again, he wanted us to understand that part of the answer, part of the truth on suffering, is that inherent in life itself was causes for suffering, such as the other category was impermanence. He said that one of the other reasons why we suffer is because we don't like the fact that when we are honest about reality, and whether we're honest about it or not, a fact of the universe, 
and all dharma, or phenomena, if you will, has as its nature the nature of impermanence. Everything is impermanent. Nothing stays the same from the moment, if you will, it appears. Uh, you and I certainly are not the same people that came out of our mother's wombs, neither physically, mentally, psychologically, emotionally, or spiritually. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Everything is constantly changing. The weather's changing. The climate is changing. You've changed. I've changed. We continue to change. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Nothing, nothing exists as a fixed or permanent reality. Nothing. All phenomena is subject to change. Now, Again, that's a fact of reality. That, that's, that is the way it's all been set up. And yet we suffer over that. And obviously, or maybe not so obviously, the Buddha said, and the reason why we suffer over that is that we live our lives as if the opposite was true. We create expectations of life as if the opposite was true, if not about everything, you know, we, we can say, oh yeah, I can, get, I can get along with the weather changing. What I can't get along with is with her changing, you say, or him changing, or my life changing. But the Buddha said, the reason why we suffer is because we resist and are unwilling to embrace something that is inherent to all life, and that something is the nature of impermanence. And... He went as far as to say that being a fact about everything, including our experience, happiness is suffering, he said. Happiness is suffering because it's not impermanent. Success, getting what we want, is suffering, he said. Even the purest state, you know, I have people that have been coming here and in Cinnaminson and prior to that, Riverton and prior to that, all the other locations, seeking out that blissful meditation experience and that blissful state of, of life, only to be dissatisfied and say, oh, Zen's not worth it, you know. But the truth of the matter, he warned us, even bliss and peace and joy is of the nature of impermanence and, and is a cause for suffering. This doesn't mean that happiness, success, and bliss are bad. What it means is, is that, and you need to hear this because I, I can remember the first time I really got this. A friend of mine who was also a teacher said at one time, he said, you know, when people go to the restaurant, they never really eat the food. They eat the menu, he said. They eat the menu. And, I, and when I finally got that, this teaching of the Buddha became really clear for me. So what the Buddha is saying is, we don't even know what happiness really is. Because when we, even when we're happy, we, are, we wrap around that experience a story about it, an expectation of it, so that we're working so hard to get it and know it that as it's passing, <laughs> we miss it. It's kind of like 
You know, we're so busy working for the future and we lose so much in the present. And we do that with happiness and everything other that we may call positive or, or uh, pleasant in our lives. So it's not that happiness is bad, it's not that success is bad or having goals and what have you. It's that we don't experience them or engage those moments skillfully. And to engage them skillfully is not to attach ourselves to them, not to set expectations up for them. So in other words, when you're happy, be happy. But we're not even able to do that, he would say, most of us, because again, we take that moment and we set it up to such a high expectation that when it passes, we suffer so much. Not because the happiness has passed, but we don't even know how to really be happy. I'm saying. And finally he said, when we take a look at how everything in the universe operates, how everything came to be, how you got here tonight, and why you're here tonight, and whether or not you'll get the teaching tonight, he said, is conditional. Another word for that is cause and effect, or karma. Everything, he said, that exists, all effect has a cause. So it is the conditioned state of everything that he said that often causes us suffering because, again, in the general explanation of the Second Noble Truth, when he says ignorance is a cause of suffering, we are ignorant of that fact of life, that everything has a cause, every effect has a cause, and everything that happens is caused by a particular condition present at that moment. So if you want a particular effect, you need to have those conditioned causes present. But the way most of us live our lives is that we expect the effect without the causes. It's kind of like, I want enlightenment, but I don't want to do the work. Or, I want peace in my life, but I don't want to forgive, and I don't want to you know, uh, give the benefit of the doubt. You see? And I want you know, happiness, but I don't want you know, to make that happen. I, I'm waiting for someone or something to come along to cause it. So it's our ignorance of the, the cause and effect reality of everything. To be conditioned is to be dependent on or affected by something else. So once again, the Buddha says to us, when we take a look at another cause of our suffering, looking at what he called original conditioning, when we take a look at another fact, uh, cause of our suffering, it involves, with, it involves the fact that we keep looking for, for example, our happiness in all the wrong places. We keep expecting to get some kind of fulfillment from something that is not designed for fulfillment. And so that is why we overeat, that is why we overdrink, that is why we overwork, that is why we, we are constantly running to and fro. And again, we need to understand that when we find ourselves dependent on a particular conditioning for our happiness, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And the reason why we're in trouble 
is that that conditioning, that cause, as well as its effect, is of the nature of impermanence. According to the teachings of dependent origination, all phenomena are conditioned. So when we go looking for things outside ourselves, people, places, and things, to bring about our happiness, they may just do that. But we need to remember that those people, places, and things, capacity to cause happiness is temporary or impermanent. This is the most difficult part of the teachings on dukkha to understand, but it is critical to understanding what the Buddha meant when he said, life is suffering. Life is suffering, he said, because all phenomena, all existence, is part of a conditioned reality, and that dependent origination uh, literally defines for us uh, our capacity, if you will, for happiness and contentment. So we live in a very difficult reality, in other words. Life, he said, is difficult. And it's always been that way, and it always will be that way. I, was, uh, I went to a concert at my uh, daughter's school the other day, and she had invited her babysitter. Uh, and when I got there, she was there, uh, and she's a, a very well-educated woman. Very, uh, she's a retired um, family therapist. And I found her reading a book on um, uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife. And uh, so she started telling me about the book because she knows I'm a Lincoln fan. And uh, she said, one of the profound things that jumps out at me at this book is that nothing has really ever changed. That politicians in the time of Lincoln are the same politicians today. That they were doing the same stuff, behaving the same way, even then. Even then. Nothing has ever really changed in the human experience. People were upset about the same issues in the time of Lincoln that we are upset about today. And again, dependent origination says to us, if our causes for happiness do not change, then we cannot expect the effect or the results we want. So, again, suffering... Like Jesus says to his students, the poor you will always have with you. What he was saying was, suffering will always be a fact of life. And then that brings us to taking refuge. Because the Buddha Dharma was the Buddha's solution for living in a reality where suffering was inherent. How do we live in an impermanent reality and that impermanency and the conditioned reality and that conditioning generates suffering. How do we live in that reality is what he wanted to understand. So the first noble truth says to us, life is suffering. The second noble truth says to us, the causes for suffering are among what I just shared with you. And the third noble truth is where Buddha says, and there is cessation from suffering. But as I wrote about it on Facebook just recently, before I talk about cessation from suffering by taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, before I talk about that, we need to understand that the Buddha did not mean the absence of suffering. He did not mean cessation from suffering like 
we get somewhere and all of a sudden we're in Shangri-La where there is no suffering. Like I always remind people about that story of Shangri-La. Whenever anyone left Shangri-La, they got old and aged and sickly and died when they left Shangri-La, you're saying. So suffering pervades the whole universe. That is our reality. And the Buddha said, if that is so, and it is, then how do we live with that? How do we live in a reality where its very nature is a cause for suffering? And for Buddhists, it has to do with understanding what we call taking refuge. And this taking refuge involves understanding what Buddhists call the three jewels of Buddhism, or gems of Buddhism. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. A personal meditation practice is the foundation of Buddhism. And by Buddhism we mean the Buddha Dharma, living a deeply and profound spiritual life, cannot be accomplished. Navigating through a reality that causes suffering, skillfully and effectively, cannot be accomplished without at the core of our livingness, our lifestyle, is our commitment to a, a life of meditation. But that's not enough, the Buddha said. It is not enough to just simply meditate. Why? Have a guess? Anyone? You know, it's like when people come here and they say, I feel so peaceful. We had a, um, a group of native Indian people from India here last week. And these were yogis and disciples of yogis, people who had been practicing and training for, if not all their life, most of their life. And they came, they were on a pilgrimage going from temple to temple. They called me last month and said, we'd like to stop and pray at your temple on our way to the next one. So they came here last Wednesday morning and uh, they were just so cute. <laughs> And uh, so reverent, so respectful. It was just a joy to be with them. And, but as they were leaving, I overheard the conversations, how they were talking about chi. If you know anything about chi, it's our energy. And when you do uh, yogic meditation uh, in the purest sense of it as it is in India, uh, you work with chi, you work with energy. And they were commenting about how when they got off the uh, they came in like two little van-like buses that they own, and they, they said when they got off, they began to feel the chi here, and as they entered in here, the chi vibrated faster for them, and how it was such a calming and peaceful experience for them. And my thought was, when they drove away, was uh, how their chi was going to be when they went through Trenton. <laughs> so in other words, like I say to people, what did you expect? When you meditate, and you meditate skillfully and effectively, peace is going to follow. But the Buddha said that's not enough. Why? Because that's impermanent. That's impermanent. Unless it is joined with, balanced with, and coupled with the teachings. So essentially we make the journey alone but many people find that committing themselves to the three jewels, 
Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha helps take them further. So I often say to people, and I'll be talking about this more in a few moments, selfishness got you here. Got me here too. But it won't keep you here. You're saying. The same thing with the meditation practice. So many of us, particularly in the Western culture, will meditate for the same reason why we get a glass of wine or, or take a pill, to feel better. And so selfishness, and again, this is not a word in Buddhism like it is in our culture that's got this terrible negative connotation to it. In fact, Suzuki Roshi, whose photograph is on our altar, uh, talked about why selfishness. So wisdom says, selfishness got you here, so thank God for selfishness. Mm. But it will not keep you here, because everything that is of the selfish nature is impermanent. Okay? So it's, when we talk about the uh, three refuges, we need to talk about them again as the, the, the other ingredient necessary for that deep and sustainable uh, spiritual life. When we embark on the meditative journey, we may enter through many different ways. So again, as I said a moment ago, we may enter or come here for selfish reasons, but those selfish reasons will not keep us here. We may begin to practice meditation as a way of finding a little more calm in the midst of a chaotic life, to find respite from our turbulent mind. We may begin to meditate, meditate, yeah, meditate. We may begin to meditate to find a way to meet adversities with greater understanding and balance. We may be drawn to meditation through experiences of joy, glimpses of stillness, intimacy, and connectedness that inspires us to question whether such moments could be more than just accidental encounters. Both sorrow and joy can bring us to a point where we acknowledge the urgency of finding ways to be more at peace with ourselves, to be kinder to ourselves and others, and to be more present in all the moments of our life. So again, selfishness will get you here, but it will not keep you here. Selfishness categorizes all conditional states. So all conditioned states, and if you were listening, all phenomena is a conditioned state, are primarily a selfish energy. All phenomena is conditional. That conditionality is by nature selfish. It operates out of survival. So something in our lives, my life 50, 60 years ago, whenever it was, your life, whenever it was, something went on, a condition or a cause was present that made you think, maybe meditation, maybe Zen, maybe Buddhism, maybe God, maybe Jesus, whatever it was for you, something caused us to enter through one gate or another. But we need to remember that whatever we found in that moment when we passed through that gate, and perhaps it was meditation, perhaps it was yoga, perhaps it was prayer, I don't know for you. Whatever it is, whatever it was, uh, will prove to be insufficient eventually without adding 
a much deeper understanding, which again, the teachings bring us. And among those teachings is an understanding of what it really means to sustain our spiritual practice by taking refuge in the, in the uh, three jewels or gems. As our practice deepens, our eyes open to possibilities beyond composure and balance. We open up to the possibility of an unshakable liberation and timeless wisdom and being intimately part of a wider community of people who treasure compassion and integrity. We may be inspired to bind ourselves more deeply to the path and to those around us. You've probably heard the saying, you know, that um, you are measured by the company you keep. You know saying? And so when we talk about, as we will, the third jewel, Sangha or community, in his wisdom, the Buddha was very clear that no one can make this journey alone. No man, no woman is an island. No one can try to make this alone. We need community, we need Sangha. So, real spirituality, authentic spirituality, as I call it, is by nature both relational and intimate. Relational and intimate. And I cannot begin to count the number of people over the past 40-some years who have come to me for counseling or coaching who fear both relationships and intimacy. They're saying. And that conditioning they bring with them to this practice either proved to be the cause for them to not be able to sustain it or if they mustered the courage required to really work with that challenge turned out to be the cause for not only sustainability but fulfillment in their spiritual life. Intimacy with a larger group is not only essential on our spiritual journey, but is a characteristic of a true spiritual journey. None of us are designed to make this journey alone. At this point, we may begin to ask ourselves not only what meditation practice is, but what it means to live a meditative and spiritual life. So most of us have identified meditation as that behavior when we sit on a cushion or in a chair, as we did a few moments ago, become quiet and do it what it is we do. But for the Zen Buddhists, meditation is a context. The meditative life is a context for living life. To help us accomplish this, the next step in our journey is to look beyond our individual or personal practice and seek the support of what are known in Buddhism as the Three Jewels and Refugees. These are Buddha, which refers firstly to our own true nature, or Buddha nature. So when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, we talk about taking refuge in our true nature. And again, Zen in particular talks about this false self as opposed to this true self. We are born with the knowledge and understanding of this true self, or our true nature. When we were born, we knew who we were. Something eventually happens in our uh, uh, process of growing up, 
uh, psychotherapists talk, call it the you know, development years and conditional years where we create or it becomes formed for us this identity uh, that follows us or informs us the rest of our life. That transition, as it is, from an awareness of who we truly are to becoming this person we have been conditioned to believe we are is the beginning of suffering, is ignorance. And from that moment on, the Buddha Dharma teaches, we ignore our, uh, we ignore our true self and our inherent qualities that we possess and go looking for all of that in the world. We go searching for all of that in the world. So when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, the teaching firstly means taking refuge in our original nature, our true self. And this is often absolutely necessary to be clear about when we talk about, you know, uh, people like to say, well, I like, can't I just be who I am? My response usually is, is absolutely. The problem is you have no clue who that is. Okay? And that makes you dangerous, I say, to yourself and others. So once you realize who you are, I welcome that. Because, again, the Buddha taught that that is not only who you are, but it's who I am and who everything is, if you will. And that's the problem in our world. So when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, we understand that to mean taking refuge in our Buddha nature. We also understand it to mean to take refuge in the teacher or teachers. And here, much to people's surprise, and only because we bring a hearing of this lesson from maybe our own traditions, when Buddhism talks about enlightened teachers, they mean all enlightened teachers, not just those in the Buddhist path, but Christ and uh, Teilhard Chardin, uh, teachers past, present, and future. So the first refuge says to us, there is hope. And you'll hear me talk about this more in a few moments. That 25 centuries ago, a young man by the name of Siddhartha proved that there was cessation from suffering and its causes. He proved it with his own life. And he wasn't the only one who proved it with his own life. Christ brings us that message. Uh, and so many other historical teachers down through the centuries have said to us, you don't need to be that. When I was talking to, again, Katie's babysitter later on, uh, we were talking about techniques that she used in raising her children and all of that. And she told me that whenever her daughter uh, behaved in ways that were uh, you know, destructive to herself and all, she would say something to her. And, and it was interesting because uh, the, you have to hear this whole story before you hear what she was saying. She would say to her daughter, I think her daughter's name was Danielle. She would say, Danielle, this behavior is beneath you. And walk away. And she said she would get it. She would get it when she said that. And that's all she would have to do. That her daughter understood somehow just those words were effective enough for her daughter to reflect and say, this really isn't who I am and who I want to be. And as we uh, continue tonight, you'll hear how that is part of the process. So 
taking refuge in our true nature. And that nature is again characterized with such virtues as compassion and loving kindness, joy and contentment and all of that. To take refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in your original nature, your true self, and to take refuge in the teachers who exist past, present and future as living examples and proof that cessation from suffering is possible. Second, the Dharma. And this use of the word Dharma in Buddhism, again, points to two different things. Same things, but two things. And that is, when we talk about Dharma, we talk about the universe. Dharma is first the laws which govern and make this whole thing work, we call universe. The planets, the stars, the cosmos, life, birth, death, all of that. Those realities, if you will, those mechanisms for life, if you will, is what we mean when we use the word Dharma. We also use it to mean the teachings in Buddhism themselves. So when I, a student of, of the Dharma, look at the real form of the universe, look at reality, look at the cosmos, look at the heavens, look at the stars, look at nature outside, look at life itself, what I see, what I see is that there is a mechanism that works. And it makes sense to me, and this was all part of my own uh, transition, if you will. It makes sense to me that to understand that holds great power for me. So when we take refuge in the Dharma, part of that practice is to really take uh, you know, time to understand the laws of nature. That is why since its uh, birth, whether in China, Bodhidharma brings the teachings to China, and Chan Buddhism is born, which is the original Zen Buddhism, it makes its way to Japan and they can't say Chan, so guess what they say? Zen. And whether in China or India or Japan or here in America, Zen monasteries are often found in nature, in the pinelands or in the mountains, somewhere where the natural world is present. And there's a reason for that. Because again, we cannot understand ourselves apart from nature, and we cannot find the solutions for our life apart from understanding nature, because even though our human ego can be arrogant at times and deny this, we are a part of nature. We exist as one of the many species in the forest. So when we talk about taking refuge in the Dharma, it means to take refuge in understanding the laws of nature and how that operates. And the teachings themselves uh, of the Buddha and again all enlightened beings uh, as they apply to living a truly spiritual life. And finally, the third jewel is the Sangha. Taking refuge in the Sangha means engaging, becoming part of a community of monks first. The Sangha, and this is very important, this word Sangha in the time of the Buddha 
and not until it makes its way to the West does that get altered. But from the time of the Buddha and all throughout Buddhism's journey towards the West, the Sangha was limited to the community of monks and nuns. The monks and the nuns were the Sangha. Lay people took refuge in their practice through the practice of dana or generosity. They supported monks and nuns to train and practice for them. As the Buddha Dharma makes its way to the West, Sangha begins to include, but not be defined as, the larger group, including lay people. So in the West, this word Sangha is used to, de to describe monks and laity, but its original definition meant, uh, again, the community of monks. So when it gets finally to the West and established, this word Sangha means the, first of all, the community of dedicated monks and included in that fellow practitioners. So whether one is an ordained monk like myself or not, a practitioner, a lay person who practitions, who, who, who literally trains in the Buddha Dharma uh, and the supporters of that, the benefactors, the, the donators and so forth, that is the community of the Buddha Dharma but the Sangha is that part of that community made up of monks and the dedicated practitioners. Uh, it continues to be defined that way because again, when I sit to meditate, my vow is to sit for all the many beings. I do not meditate for my own well-being. I do not live this life for myself alone. I live it for the benefit of all sentient beings. So again, when we go back in time, in the time of the Buddha, again, he set up a system that was primarily for monastics, and the lay people uh, turned to the monastics to practice daily for them because they were unable to. They had families and careers and jobs and all that other stuff, as you know, going on. Not until Buddhism makes its way to the West do we find an expansion and a more inclusive definition of that term. As so many others have before us, we may decide to take refuge in the three jewels or refuges as a way of continuing to open to the deeper possibilities. We have only glimpsed. This is an important step on the journey and one we will repeat many times over. So what does it mean to take refuge and what do the three jewels really mean? Before I go there, any questions? So if we can put it back down. Oh, go ahead. Rishi, I saw a play last night called The Christians, and it was a story about um, basically a church. And at one point, one of, the, one of the main characters talks about how God, how he felt God's presence and so on. And it kind of took me back to things that you said in the past in terms of we are, we are not our thoughts and our feelings. And then I was, we were talking after the play, and I tried to explain that, and it always comes back around to a mystic sort of, what if you take away your thoughts and your feelings, who are you? Right. And how do you conceptualize that? It's very hard to explain that. So to me, it's almost like, even though Buddhism has always struck me as being very practical, there's a mystic element to it that when I try to explain what it is, I'm unable to. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know, is that, just, is that Zen? Is that the whole concept, is you cannot explain it? Ultimately, what we are doing now is uh, conceptualizing a 
reality that can only be, you know, the opening Dharma says, even in hundreds of thousands of millions of eons, this has not been really known, okay, but only by a few. And when you, when you couple that with what you're talking about, and again, with what the masters say when they say, you need to exhaust your words about it and empty your thoughts about it, then you can come to know it. Yes, ultimately, the cognitive effort that is involved in this process is a process toward what can only be known through direct experience. can only be known by being this and not just doing it. And that, as you've heard me say, is a quandary for so many people. We live in a culture that's about doing in order to have. So we know a lot about doing in order to have. But again, not only Buddhism, but Jesus said the same thing. And all of the master, the, the prophets of the Torah understood this. Why do you think they stood out in front of the castle gates and screamed and yelled, you know, change your ways to the kings inside? Uh, all of the mystics, masters of all the traditions, ultimately said exactly that. Until you do the work of directly experiencing this, all you're doing is getting an opinion tonight and formulating one for yourself. Mm -hmm. saying? So yes, yeah, it can only be known by being it. Saying? That's why for the monk, you know, I love Thomas Merton, uh, you know, who probably was the greatest influence in my life and continues to be. You know, in his book he says, a monk is someone who leaves everything for this. What Zen does, and what Merton also talked about, was how do you do that while still being part of the mundane reality? Because again, Buddhism also teaches we exist at every moment. Our existence, this form, exists both in that mystical reality and the mundane at the same time. And what is Zen? Why do we behave the way we do? Why do we eat the way we do when we come for sashim? Why, where does it, that's where ritual comes in. Ritual connects us with this while we're here. Okay? So uh, the, the, only, the only thing that I would add to uh, what you're saying and asking is, Zen says, but we can find that in this. If we know how to find this in that. <laughs> And that can only be done, it can only be done, only be done, uh, through being it. Which is why I think we've talked about this before, you know, it's not an evangelical uh, philosophy or religion. Right. It, it, you can't convince anyone right. that way. <laughs> and I don't bother as you nurse. Thank you, Rishi. I always say to people, you'll never find a Buddhist knocking at your door on Saturday morning at 8. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you, Chief. That was great. I needed that. Anybody? Okay. So the three refuge again. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. As you heard me chant that in the ancient Pali text tonight, 
those refuges are recited throughout mon in monasteries throughout the world every day. In fact, as we are probably talking about it now, somewhere in the world, monks and nuns are chanting the three refuges. Many meditation retreats here in the West begin with the recitation of the three refuges. We might see these as quasi-religious sentiments or statements of belief that seem irrelevant to our own life and spiritual practice. But the great power of taking refuge is that it opens our eyes to the whole of the teaching and reconnects us. And this is what's essential. What often is lacking in people's uh, spiritual life, in their life in general, are the practices that reconnect us and keep us connected, and I'll say this in a secular way, to what really matters. And when you get down to it, as you will hear me again before you leave tonight, recite the evening Durrani, what really matters exists in that realm that Chico and I were just talking about, and comes from that realm, and when we die, we return to that realm. And what really matters is, as again, the evening Dharani says, birth and death. What we, and what that symbolizes, those words, let me respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. What that symbolizes is what really matters. Because in the end, no matter what you do with your life, no matter how much failure, no matter how much success, you are born and you die. And... What fulfills us is that that space in between birth and death is fully engaged by us. Our discontentment, the Buddha said, is a function of us not fully engaging life as it really is. And for the Buddhist, when you listen to uh, the, the teachings as I go on, you'll hear me make reference to this in different ways. Suffering, he said, is a is a fact of life. You cannot avoid it. People are going to get sick that you love. People are going to die that you love. How do we behave in those moments? And, you know, for example, I talk about how I stopped going to funerals uh, with a few exceptions, because when the, when the Zen master walks into the funeral, everybody wants an answer to that. And the only answer I've ever been able to give to people, and ever willing to give to people, is this really sucks, batten down the hatches. You know, enlightened or not, the loss of someone you love is painful. So when you take refuge in the Sangha, for instance, you learn that in those moments, for example, the teaching is to hold on to them, to just be there for them. There's no, there's no answer. I have not been able to come up with any answer and having experienced it in my own life losing someone I love. I have not been able to come up with any answer, spiritual, religious, philosophical, that changes that experience for people. So I, I talk about that that way because in the end, we are talking about, again, back to Chico's uh, question, where the mundane, the, the, the reality of birth and death, you know, is, is all part of the sacred and the divine, you see. And what the Buddha Dharma is about, what Buddhism is about, 
is how to live, really live with that so that we're not spending our lives resisting the difficult stuff. We can learn, you know, as I said again on Facebook this week, the message of cessation from suffering is not that if you do this magical thing, you'll have no suffering in your life. No, the message of cessation from suffering that the Buddha teaches by taking refuge in these three jewels is that suffering is always going to be with you, but you are much bigger than it. And that you can learn to be with it in a way that it doesn't have you. That's the message of the Buddha Dharma. That's the reason why we strive to live in particular ways of living. Because centuries of well-honed, proven-to-work techniques have been handed down to us and is being presented to you this evening, okay, that have proven that we can live in that impermanent reality and the causes of suffering in a way that we, can, we will experience suffering, but it doesn't have to have us. And that's the great message of the Three Refuges. The great power of taking refuge is that it opens our eyes to the whole of the teaching and reconnects us to the larger reality and not just the parts we find convenient. So, you know, when we were in Cinnamons, <laughs> Butsumiko, who's watching Katie for me tonight, and the other monks who were with me at that time, uh, one day met me in the kitchen uh, before a group of uh, business people were coming on retreat. And so they met me in the kitchen. I came down, they met me in the kitchen, and they said, Roshi, we need to talk to you before you talk to this group of people. And I said, okay, what, what's up? And they, they kind of looked at each other, and I guess they were trying to figure out who was going to say it. And they looked at me and they said, would you please don't tell them they're going to die? <laughs> you know, we're trying to get some donations from them. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you want me to tell them? A lie? You know, and so forth. So I didn't give them a promise one way or the other, and obviously I told them they were going to die. And, <laughs> So again, like I said, I don't try to convince anybody of anything, <laughs> except that. And, and the fact that I have to convince you of that is part of the problem, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, this larger reality, you know, one of my teachers, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, said, good life, good death, good death, good life. And what he meant by that is, when you resolve this reality, of impermanence in your own life and of death, you'll know how to live your life in a way that is fulfilling, but not until then. And the problem is, is that most of us turn to spirituality only when it, everything else has failed in protecting us from that, you see. And then we think spirituality will do it for us, you know. And that's why if you've been with me long enough, you know that when you come here to train, one of the first things you hear me say is, there is no magic here, and I am not a magician. Okay? And that the work of spirituality is difficult and challenging, not because spirituality is difficult and challenging, but because you're difficult and challenging. <laughs> and so forth. You know, like that. Taking refuge can also help us find the capacity to meet hardship 
compassionately and with steadiness rather than with flight and denial. But before that can happen, we need to come to understand that we commit to when we make these statements or taking refuge. Taking refuge, a good translation of the original Pali, literally refers to the act of returning to a place of sanctuary or shelter to find safety, peace, and protection. A child finds refuge in the arms of a loving parent. We find shelter from a storm beneath the branches of a tree. We return home to a caring relationship for sanctuary and peace. Taking refuge is an inner journey, coming home to what is true. So again, back to my sh uh, sharing with Chico, uh, when we talk about the mystical piece of this, what that means is, is that the journey is inward. The mystic is always on an inner path, not an outer path, not in search of Shangri-La out here, but in search of it within ourselves. And you know, you know, Jesus says to his students, the kingdom of God is within you. And for centuries, they're still looking for it somewhere in the sky, you see. Uh, the Buddha said, you know, <coughs> the seeds of enlightenment are within you, you see, and Buddhists are still looking for it, you know, somewhere else. Taking refuge in the three jewels is an inner journey. It's one of returning back to the source. It's one of renunciation and repentance. The word repent means to turn around, means to go back to where you came from. Go back to your original self, your true nature. It is a profound act of devotion and inner commitment to a clear mind, an open heart, and a way of engaging with life that is pervaded with integrity, respect, and compassion. Integrity meaning a strict adherence. So I tell people this practice comes with a warranty. And the warranty reads, in order to get the maximum results out of this product, you need to apply it, okay? If you don't apply it, don't expect results, okay? And if you don't apply it and are upset that you didn't get results, don't bring it back because there are no refunds, mm -hmm. I'm saying. So again, integrity means this is a way of life that's been well honed, proven to work over centuries. If you apply it, it will work. When we act with integrity, we discover that. Respect, again, this word respect, like the word repent, has a root meaning to take a second look. So to respect yourself means rather than coming to a conclusion that generates fight or flight in any moment, find out about that part of you that is fearless. You see, it's one thing to be afraid. And like I often say, I use the example of heroes. In our culture, we often think of heroes as someone without fear. But when you talk to heroes, as I have, you find out that when they ran back into that building to save a life, they were scared to death, but still acted fearlessly. And as you'll hear me say in a, uh, as we go further tonight, it is our Buddha nature within us that convinces us in those moments that we can still meet the challenge filled with fear, filled with doubt, if we have done the training. So the fireman is prepared to run back in because he's done the training. 
What does he apply running back in there? It's not some reckless, you know, uh, media Hollywood act on his part. He runs back in and he feels confident, though he may be filled with fear, to be able to do the job because he applies what he trained in. He applies what he trained in. No training, stay out of burning buildings. Whether you're a fireman or a student of Zen. If our commitment is profound, we give ourselves unreservedly to a life of wakefulness to bringing all that is truthful and healing into every aspect of our life. Taking refuge means that I have chosen to live a life where I bring these concepts, these teachings, these virtues to every aspect of my life. I'm a monk, whether I'm sitting here in this sacred hall with you, chanting the sutras, do, uh, offering a teaching, uh, meditating, or, you know, my daughter will be seven, but I still remember cleaning her diapers. You know, see, I'm a monk when I'm doing that too. I'm a monk when I'm, you know, driving my car on the road and someone cuts me off. Applying it to all the areas of my life, that's what it means to take refuge. If our devotion is wholehearted, we align our thoughts, words, and actions with the teachings that lead to liberation. Taking refuge in the Buddha, we commit ourselves to our own capacity for freedom. So taking refuge in the Buddha means that I begin to make that inner journey, inquiring into, even though all of the information so far may have even convinced me otherwise, my capacity, my full potential for freedom and joy and contentment. And when you take that along with the teachings of the Dharma that says the reason why you may not be confident, the reason why you may doubt yourself, the reason why you might be fearful of life is because you've been looking for the solution to all of that in all the wrong places. That if you don't find it within yourself, you're not going to find it in a relationship with someone else, you're not going to find it in the Himalayas. I often tell the story about a man I listened to on NPR who was a travel agent, and he helped people make the transition from Philadelphia to Hawaii. And when, when he interviewed them uh, uh, for the process, you know, he always asked them why they wanted to move to Hawaii. And they would always say, oh, it's paradise. And, 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 and it's so paradisial, <laughs> and what have you. And he said, I would always tell them the same thing. Unless you plan to pack that in your luggage, you're not going to find it here either. You'll say. And that's what, you know, whether you're living in a palatial, I mean, look at the Buddha. The Buddha was a prince. He was heir to the throne. He had concubines by the thousands. He had, he had money. He, you know, it was like he had four Porsches, uh, 32 iPads, you know, the iPad watch, the, 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 and everything else. And he still wasn't satisfied. And we all know that. And we hear over and over again, people win the lottery and five years from now, broke and, and, and miserable and all of that. If you don't find it within you, you're not going to find it anywhere else. And the Buddha Dharma has been, again, a means to discover within yourself that you can trust. You don't even have to, there's, and it's not a blind trust. All the evidence down through the centuries proves that everybody who has stepped into the practice has realized this for themselves. Buddha, or Buddha nature, 
is also a symbol of the third noble truth, cessation. So the first refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha, is a symbol of the third noble truth, which is about the path to cessation from suffering. The Buddha is a living symbol that it can be done. He was a human being. He was no different than anyone else in this room. He was born of a mother, with a father, lived in a fa with a family. He was a human being. Nothing special about him. That's why the Zen masters you know, of old, whenever they were asked about enlightenment, the first thing they would say is, nothing special. No, nothing special. And they wanted you to understand that nothing special because we all possess it. We all can do it. Buddha or Buddha nature is a symbol of the third noble truth, a symbol of hope and inspiration. It is truly possible to know the end of anguish and struggle, discover a heart that is liberated from confusion and pain, pointing to the potential for awakening that lives in each of us. Buddha encourages us to discover for ourselves the same freedom that Buddhas throughout time have found, a symbol of possibility, encouraging us to not to despair, but to dive deeply into our hearts, to find the wisdom that can heal and liberate us. It is our Buddha nature. This is, I mentioned, I made reference to this uh, line before, so listen closely. It is our Buddha nature that inspires us to reach out a hand to comfort and support a friend in need, to forgive someone who has harmed us and to say no to injustice. It is our Buddha nature that grieves at the pain in the world and rejoices at happiness and love. Our Buddha nature brings us back to the cushion when we face difficulty and pain, trusting that we can find the understanding and steadfastness to meet our life. When our eyes and hearts are open, we glimpse Buddha nature shining in countless moments. Taking refuge in the Buddha is, in the deepest sense, to also invite the Dharma and the Sangha into our life. It means taking upon ourselves the willingness and responsibility to embody our Buddha nature. So those moments when we find ourselves feeling compassion for ourselves and others, those moments when we find ourselves joyful for the success and, and happiness of others, this is a symbol of hope for us. It points to that part of our being that, you know, when we are not so caught up in fear and worriment, that also exists within us. And we should not only just enjoy that when it happens, but take a moment to consider, you know, what, again, the writer is saying to us. There it is, within you. It's coming from within you. It's not something you are manufacturing or that can be manufactured. That immediate joy for someone's happiness. You know, uh, you know again, I think about what I feel when I'm with my daughter. You know, and she's laughing, and I hear that laugh. It just lights up inside me, and I become alive, and what have you. I'm absolutely convinced that when I had my two heart attacks, that's what kept me alive. And not only kept me alive, but I'm stronger today than I ever was, and so forth. So we can rely on taking refuge in the Buddha. But again, back to Chico and my interaction a moment ago, we need to experience that for ourselves. And as I often tell people about the technique of meditation, part of the technique necessary is the regular practice of it, 
And when, and when you understand how the brain works, how the mind is working, and it is that every experience of our life, our brain or the mind takes a kind of snapshot of, and we call that memory. And our memories generate experiences in us. For example, when we talk about how the mind works, uh, when something is happening out here, the mind that is observing it is reaching into a memory in the past in order to translate what's going on out here. So we think that we're experiencing what's going on out here for the first time. No, we are what psychologists call projecting onto that uh, circumstantial situation a memory from the past. When you meditate regularly and you experience that deep bliss, that deep peace, that becomes a photographic memory for us in the mind. And the more and more of those photographic memories you have, they expand the mind's awareness naturally. Peace naturally surfaces. So in the practice of mindfulness, which happens off the cushion, when something happens, and you know, you've heard about mindfulness in the world, uh, when in the practice of mindfulness, what happens is the more you have that photographic experience of peace and bliss, you're able to take refuge in that quickly, in those moments of stress and confusion, uh, much faster. I tell people, you know, 40 some years ago, uh, the, the, the truck called stress and anxiety would run over me, back over me, run over me again, back over me again, before I knew what to do. Today I can see it coming 20 miles away, you see, and so forth. And that's the difference from repeated and a practice of integrity, where you enter into that quiet and come to know it regularly. It, it literally fills the space within you in such a way that when that external stimulus comes, you're ready for it. You're ready for it. Except sometimes. <laughs> Hi, Marisha. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. About time you got back here. Yeah, I know. Um, so, what you just said was really enlightening because I never, like, you're right, the past we are always reflecting the past into what we see outside and those grooves are really deep. And that was such a great thing that you just said about how meditating, we take a photograph of that too. So we can begin to have that in our memory and, you know, have it more ready for when we're experiencing the new things. and not have that shadow that's always in there. That, that was great. That like really makes me want to meditate. The one thing that I really wonder about is the Sangha because, um, you know, short of becoming a monk or a nun or, you know, spending a huge amount of time in church, how can we get Sangha today? What, what do you, can you expand on the Sangha a little bit more? Like how the average person could be in Sangha on a more regular basis so that we can have that full practice going. Yeah, get here on a more regular basis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean it. <laughs> and that's really it, and that's the problem. We, you know, there's a, there's a Zen saying, uh, you should meditate at least 20 minutes a day. If you're really busy or too busy, an hour. <laughs> All right, and so, yeah, uh, 
this is a Western phenomenon. Uh, tell me something I want to hear. And, you know, we, we're looking for Mick enlightenment, aren't we? And I'm not suggesting you are. Mm -hmm. But again, that's the problem. That's, you know, as Chikya will tell you, the monks will tell you, and everybody here who, you know, has that conversation with me, how do we convince people to get here and what have you? You can't to start with, but that is the only solution. Exposing yourself to that community of people of like-mindedness, but more importantly, love the teachings of compassion and loving kindness. Mm -hmm. And what you, the, our, the, the, I, I say this over and over again, the society we live in, especially now with what's going on in the world, it's going to get even more difficult to find those opportunities if you're not part of a really deeply you know, devoted spiritual community. Now, that does not mean you need to move in with me. And we can talk I've about that if you like. We can talk about that if you like. I got an empty bedroom. Okay? That does not mean that. And it does not mean you need to be here 24 7 or every day of the week. But you do need to have that regular exposure, not just to the fun times, not just to the teachings here, but to the practice itself. And you need to work that out. You need to make that happen. You know? And, you know, Suzuki Roshi used to say, uh, you know, it's not that you don't have the time and it's not that you can't find the way, it's all about your priorities. Do you mind if I ask another yes. question? Yes, no, no, go ahead. Thing? Okay, so for instance, if I'm going to like an early morning mass in the morning and, you know, it's, it's 15 minutes, but it's daily. And so does some. They got it at 15 minutes now? Yeah, 15 minutes, old St. Mary. Oh my God. <laughs> and he's great. And it's um, you know, and then everybody goes about their day. Most people are going to yeah. work or doing right. that, whatever. So I don't mean to say, oh, can you know, we have five different sanghas, but and I know that can be like watering things down because then you might not really get intimate to right. where the group really right. gets to know you and you really right. but is it harmful to be having sangha and where you can be at that time, you know you want no, it, you no, know, no, I need no. it, I, I need it, and I, and I do yeah. seek it. I will tell you what the first Catholic asked me who came to train with me when I left Francis' house, which is a Catholic retreat house, and, and opened my first zendo. So many of the Catholics here came to that zendo and asked, how do we do this as Catholics? And I said, go to Mass with a Zen mind, okay? <laughs> so I am all, probably, I am all for five o'clock, four o'clock morning mass. It's like our early dawn meditation here. So whether it's in a Catholic <coughs> church or here, I wanna encourage you to keep doing that, okay? Uh, wherever spirit is present, expose yourself to that. And it's, you need that core group, okay? So most people are surprised, you know, during Sacred Space Week when nobody really gets to see me, including the other monks and what have you and all, I mean, I visit churches, synagogues, uh, and, and, you know, other sources and what have you. Uh, I've gone to midnight mass, you know, incognito and all of that. And I've gone in my robes. You know, my friend Jim Casa, who's a deacon at Sacred Heart. I mean, I've gone to his masses as a Buddhist monk. So, um, no, I strongly encourage any opportunity like that to keep doing that. 
and yoga and I mean, you know, what are other examples? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The problem is, is that you know, just because there's a sign hanging out front where a Buddhist <laughs> doesn't necessarily make make it so. Yeah. Okay. So getting down to understanding that, you know, in the Buddhist Sangha, the Sangha were the people working to liberate themselves from suffering and its causes in their life. And that's work, okay? And you've heard me talk about this in the past. I have a problem with Western culture spirituality. It's all about feeling good. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm very suspicious about where it's just all about that, okay? So you gotta do some work in finding some real workers. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, I read it here, I think a moment from now, this author writes about that. You know, be very careful of the blissful environments, you know. And, and I agree with that. You know. I agree with that because this stuff is work. And you yeah. know. And all the stuff that's been going on in your life, you know it takes work to liberate yourself from that. Okay? Yeah. So you've got to be really discerning yeah. and get serious about this. And it's not like I don't enjoy the fun sometimes. I like parties as much as anyone else. <laughs> but I don't look for my enlightenment there. Okay? When I want pleasure, I go to pleasure places. Mm -hmm. When I, you know, want real work, I hit the cushion. And I join Zen students. And if that ain't work, you don't know what work is. <laughs> you know, Rumi's, you know, I think it was Rumi who said, you're not a good teacher until you have 10,000 people who disagree with you. <laughs> okay. I hit that about 22 years ago. <laughs> And they're all called Zen students. Okay? All right? Thank you. Good question. Anyone else? The Dharma is the path that leads to the realization of our Buddha nature. It teaches us the universal reality of change and impermanence, impermanence which pervades the entire universe, the causes for our unsatisfactoriness, and the truth of no-self, which we don't have time tonight to get into that runs through all of our lives. It reveals our interconnectedness, which is usually clouded by delusion and fear. And again, back to that discernment, you know, we need to take a look at the teachings, whether, whether it's in a yoga center or a Zen center, are the teachings about reality. You know, I have a problem with New Age spirituality where everybody's trying to be angels and they're not angels, okay? You know, where everybody's trying to find magic in stones when they can't even believe they've got the magic within them. So that's, again, we're taking refuge in the Dharma. <coughs> you know, again, none of this is philosophy. None of this is a belief system. You can see this. You can know this. Uh, in fact, much of quantum physics comes from the Buddha's teachings and what have you. You can find quantum physicists and the Buddha side by side talking about the same thing. So, uh, again, the Dharma is what we practice when we sit down with the intention to let go of all the stuff that doesn't work, to calm the waves of agitation in our hearts and to understand what is true. When we go out into our day with a commitment to not harm and to protect the well-being of all living beings, we are practicing the Dharma. When we are generous with our time, attention, our gifts and love, we embody the Dharma. When we resolve to be truthful, to treasure a clear mind, and to engage the world with respect and appreciation, we are living the Dharma. 
The teachings of profound wisdom found in the volumes of scriptures are intended not only to be absorbed only as an intellectual exercise, back to Chico's uh, conversation, but also to be assimilated and embodied. Again, it is one thing for us to talk about these teachings tonight. As I often say to people, the validity of our interaction tonight comes when you leave here. It works only if you apply it. We realize how remarkably forgetful we can be when we engage the Dharma. Then we begin to appreciate how easy it is to be lost in habits of aversion, resistance, greed, and heedlessness. Every time we can find the willingness to be with what is and step out of the cycles of resistance and forgetfulness, we renew our commitment to the Dharma. Each time we choose a path of kindness rather than aversion, seek peace rather than conflict, speak with truthfulness rather than dissemble, we are practicing the Dharma. So to take refuge in the Dharma is to live these teachings. The more and more we are these teachings, again, they become experiential for us, experiential knowledge. The Japanese say, we believe that, again, this is the source of knowledge. In the East, it is the heart that is the source of any true wisdom. And recently, medical science, again, along with quantum physicists, are looking at how powerful the heart really is uh, to the body and to consciousness. The heart, that organ itself, has its own wisdom and its own intelligence and so forth. So the, for, for the Buddhist, it's an experiential knowledge that has the value. This plays a part, but only gets us so far. And this was something that Einstein talked about in Princeton when he talked about the process of discovery. He says a scientist you know, observes an object and brings conversation to that observation. But when, that, when the discovery of whatever that is is made, he said, he called it the aha moment. He said it's like a bridge where the scientist, after observation, writing down formula, repeating that process over and over again, has this aha moment, and then there's the discovery. He said the bridge between that process and the discovery is one of complete silence and total experiential, he said. And all great discoveries, he said, are made in that moment. The process of thinking about it is necessary, but when you finally see it, there's no words or explanation that brings that about. There is just seeing it, pure seeing it. Any questions? Okay. Finally, taking refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha, or the community of the wise, can be understood at least on three levels. One is called the Noble Sangha, the community of those who are awakened and embody that wisdom. These are the Buddhas and teachers who inspire us and encourage us. They are the people who have touched us with their unwavering commitment to end the suffering and anguish in our world, we aspire to follow their example. The Sangha is also the monastic order of monks and nuns, people who inspire us with the simplicity and integrity of their lives, reminding us by their presence how deeply important it is to dedicate our hearts and lives to ethics, mindfulness, and liberation. Their living presence of simplicity, renunciation, and commitment. For many centuries, the long lineage of the monastic Sangha has offered refuge to those who have no refuge. 
brought life to the Dharma and reminded us of the most precious gem of all, the treasure of freedom or liberation. The monastic, uh, the monastic part of the community in a very real way endeavors to be the microcosmic view of a just and compassionate society, rooted in ethics, respect, and wise relationship. Finally, the Sangha is found in the community of fellow practitioners and the relationships of trust and integrity we nurture in our own lives. Genuine Sangha relationship that treasures harmony and practice, practices the wisdom of interconnectedness. It is challenging to go on silent retreats and to cultivate a practice where we sit with ourselves on a cushion. But in our individualistic culture, it is far more challenging for people to cultivate community and true friendship. Each one of us gets up off our meditation cushion and enters into the world of relationship. Bringing our practice and our commitment to wakefulness into that world is what enriches our practice and gives it meaning. Our path remains incomplete as long as the third treasure is omitted from our practice. It is in community that we discover how hard it is to live in a truly ethical way. A friend of mine said that if practicing the Buddhist precepts, this is, this, this, I love this. A friend of mine said that if practicing the Buddhist precepts, the guidelines for how to conduct ourselves with attention and kindness does not make your life more uncomfortable, you haven't understood them well. <laughs> A friend of mine said, relationship is the battleground for spirituality. It is in community that our commitment to kindness and openness is challenged, that we begin to understand that generosity and forgiveness requires letting go of this self attached to feelings, emotions, and thoughts, opinions, ideas, and beliefs. Nowhere else in our lives are we so vulnerable as in our relationships. So the Buddha's wisdom teaching encourages us to cultivate a wise vulnerability. And that comes back to who you associate with yourself with. If you're going to associate with someone, realize that relationship is challenging and the battleground for enlightenment and spirituality. So surround yourself wisely with the people that are going to support you in achieving that. As our practice deepens, we increasingly understand the truth of our interconnectedness and interdependence. All beings long for happiness. All beings wish to be understood and to be protected. All beings long to be free from pain, struggle, and fear. In a very real way, both my happiness and sorrow are linked to yours. I tell people more and more when I engage them in, in uh, uh, speaking engagements at schools and corporations and universities, I usually end my talk by saying the same thing to all these groups. The most important thing you can do for me is to be happy. And the most important thing you can do for me is to be happy because when you're happy, you'll leave me alone. <laughs> we cannot seek our own awakening. We can only take part in the awakening of all beings. All for one, one for all, was not something in Hollywood generated but is an ancient Buddhist teaching. That is why all true Zen monks and nuns down through the centuries, before taking their seat, contemplate, I take the seat of enlightenment 
not for myself alone, but for all sentient beings. I dedicate myself to the practice of the Dharma, not for my own liberation, but for the liberation of all sentient beings. When we pray, we pray that all beings may be happy, not just myself alone. The cultivation of community or Sangha is ultimately to commit ourselves to respectful and appreciative relationships. It is a commitment to discovering the Buddha nature in all beings and to embodying our Dharma, our own understanding. We can all learn what it means to be a true friend to another, offering kindness, honesty, and understanding and support, making time for friendship to develop persevering with the challenges that relationship inevitably brings, respects the value that community plays on our path. The triple gem is three parts that are completely interwoven. They hold within them the whole of the teaching and path of liberation. We call Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha the three jewels or treasures because they have profound and enduring value. Nurtured together, they lead to unshakable, sustainable, fulfilling freedom. The end. <laughs> or the beginning. <laughs> I love this teaching. Love it. Do you get that? <laughs> More than ever before, I'm convinced the world needs this wisdom. And you are the vehicle for that wisdom. So as I said a moment ago, and I've said thousands of times, the validity of what we did here tonight, the, these teachings, this practice, this temple, follows you when you leave here, and happens when you leave here. We just had a nice talk. The rest is up to you. Thank you for the privilege of being here. <clears throat> there are refreshments in the other room if you'd like to hang out a little bit after we close the Dharma Hall. Uh, we go into sacred space, and uh, in a couple weeks, we have a half-day meditation retreat. Look it up on the uh, website and get involved. Come back and put your, what's it say? Put your words in there. Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, put your money where your mouth is. What's the date? It's the first first Saturday. First Saturday. And if anybody would like to see Katie, she's here tonight. Mitsumiko is watching her, and she's waiting to come into the community room to say hi. My teacher. <laughs> respectfully remind you, birth and death is the supreme matter. Everything is of the nature of impermanence. Gone, gone, forever gone. Opportunity is too often lost. Do not squander your life.
I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night.